Well, good morning to you. Oh my goodness. Well, sorry, get my voice working. Good morning to you. I want to invite you to keep your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 1. Today we're beginning a sermon series together in the book of Ephesians. So if you're here with us uh, as a guest, this is your first Sunday with us, or maybe your first time in a long time, this is a great time to be here and a great time to get involved as we're starting a new sermon series together. Uh, if you are here as a part of our congregation from one kind of background or another, I want you to know that you're in the right place. I'm glad that you're here today, and I believe that as we pay attention to what God's Word has to say to us in the book of Ephesians, good stuff is going to happen in our congregation. We're titling this sermon series, we're taking the title out of Ephesians chapter 2, just a few words, being built together. And we've paused in our sermon series through the book of Matthew, which we will return to in the fall. But we've paused in that sermon series in the book of Matthew to pay attention to how God's word teaches us as a church what it means in Jesus Christ to be built together. I'll begin perhaps with a question. What can unite a diverse church in a, di- in a divided world? I was talking with a group of pastors on a video call earlier this week, a group of pastors uh, from a whole bunch of different denominational backgrounds. And as we were having a conversation about ministry, each of these pastors is connected with other pastors and other leaders in a variety of ways. But one of the Pastors on the phone call pointed out that as he's talking with pastors from other churches, the main question that he hears congregations are asking is how do we stay together? You think back to the cultural pressures that we have all felt since 2020. And of course, it was not easy for congregations to live united together and to live with a Christian unity before 2020. But my goodness, since 2020, there have been all kinds of pressures from our culture that make it more and more difficult for us to link arms with brothers and sisters in Christ if they disagree with us on anything that our favorite podcaster or news program tells us is important. And so church leaders and members of congregations around the country are asking this question, what can unite, device, what can unite diverse churches in a divided world? It's a question that our congregation needs to ask in a specific way right now. In addition to all of the pressures that pull people in any congregation in America in the 2020s apart, 
In addition to those pressures, here in our congregation, we have this unique thing going on. We are together one congregation today, and I thank God for that. But just a couple of weeks ago, we were a couple of different congregations. Just a couple of weeks ago, some of us from the Advent background were worshiping in one congregation. And just a couple of weeks ago, those of us from a Redeemer background were gathering in another congregation. And so just a couple of weeks ago, we were two different congregations. But now through God's guidance, we have been brought together and we need to ask this question. What will lead toward us being built up together? How can a church with diverse church backgrounds within it be united and built up in our unity in a divided world? This is a question that churches across the country are facing. What can unite a diverse church in a divided world? It's a question that our congregation needs to pay attention to in a specific way right now in 2023 And this is a question that the church was also facing 2,000 years ago when the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the saints who are faithful in the city of Ephesus. This letter that we know as the book of Ephesians, part of the New Testament, is full of rich gospel theology, which we'll see even today. And this letter that we know as the book of Ephesians in the New Testament is full of practical direction for what it means for churches to live together in unity. But what ties everything together in the book of Ephesians is a vision for what it means to be united with Christ. Not only individually united with Christ, but as individuals who are united with Christ, what it means for us to be built together into Him. This book paints a vision of a united church in a divided world. A united church in a divided world that finds its unity In the gospel of Jesus Christ. So. What can unite. A diverse church. In a divided world. Let's pay attention to. How God's word. How God's spirit leading. Paul 2000 years ago. And how God's spirit still speaking through God's word today. Wants to teach us. Something about being built together in Jesus Christ. We begin where this letter begins. It begins with giving thanks for the Father's love. You see that in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter which aims at teaching the church about being built together. This letter which aims to teach us about what it means for us to be united with Christ. It begins with giving thanks for the Father's love. 
And of course, giving thanks might at some level sound like a cheap answer. If ever in school you were told you made a mistake and so I want you to write something out ten times in a row. I give thanks to God for blah, blah, blah. You know, like if you've just been told, just say it ten times in a row as some kind of consequence for bad behavior, you know that at some surface level, this idea of giving thanks could be perceived as an awfully, an awfully shallow response to a problem as deep as Christian division. But when gratefulness genuinely grows out of our hearts, not just as an external behavior where it's like, I want you to say this ten times fast, I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks. But when gratefulness, when we start to say in our hearts, thank you, Lord. When gratefulness begins to actually grow out of our hearts, An attitude of gratitude has a profound ability to shape all kinds of other things in our lives. And so where does this letter begin? It begins with this heart level issue of giving thanks for the Father's love. Now more specifically... What does that mean to give thanks for the Father's love? What are we giving thanks for? Well, for one thing, in verse 3, this this letter is leading us, God's Spirit through His Word is leading us to give thanks for the Father's love because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Did you catch that phrase in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with, quote, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there are a lot of days when I wake up and I do not feel like I have received every spiritual blessing. But here, God's word puts us face to face with this gospel reality that we sometimes summarize with the phrase already and not yet. And very often in our experience, we know that there's a lot of God's promises that are not yet fully fulfilled. There is a lot of darkness and pain and hardship and so on that still surrounds our lives. There's a lot of not yet with respect to God's promises. Why? Because they're still going to be fulfilled in a fuller way on that day when the Lord returns. But along with all of the not yet, which we're very familiar with in our experience, Ephesians chapter 1 kind of wants to wake us up like a cup of gospel coffee. I like coffee in the morning. I hope you do as well. That's just personal advice. It's not God's word. But like a good cup of coffee in the morning, which 
the aroma of it alone can start to awaken something inside of us. And drinking it can kind of get the heartbeat accelerating a little bit for the day, right? Like a good cup of coffee in the morning. Except with even deeper nutritional value for those of you who don't like caffeine or whatever, right? But like a good cup of coffee with even deeper nutritional value. Ephesians chapter 1 puts in front of us this glorious gospel truth. There is a lot of darkness and a lot of pain and a lot of not yet in our experience. But there is also a profound already in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although we do not yet fully experience all of God's good and precious promises in our daily experience in this fallen world, we are already inheritors. We already have possession of His great and glorious promises. So much so that the New Testament can describe it like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Take a sip of that gospel truth. And let it open your eyes to see the world around you afresh. Yes, there's a lot of not yet. Yes, there's a lot that we long for on the last day when Jesus returns. But this much is already sure. We have the inheritance as our promise today already. My favorite illustration of of this, um, which I've used before, so my apologies if you've heard it. But my favorite illustration of this is kids on December 1st. On December 1st, Christmas trees go up and maybe a few presents begin to arrive near the Christmas tree. And here's the thing. On December 1st, the kids do not yet have the toys in their possession. You tracking with me? On December 1st, They know there's another day coming when the toys will finally be unwrapped and it'll all be ours. But on December 1st, are kids full of doom and gloom or are kids full of joy and hope? On December 1st, even though they haven't yet unwrapped the presents and got the toys in their hands, so to speak, kids are full of abundant joy and abundant hope. Why? Because they know that what is under the tree is an assurance of what is to come. They know it so deeply that it affects their sense of joy and their hope today. In light of December 25th, which is still to come. And in the same way as Christians, even though we wake up morning after morning and we know there is still an experience of the fullness of God's restoring work that we haven't yet experienced, not yet. But you know what? Jesus Christ came into our world and lived the perfect life that we did not live. He died as the only sacrifice that will ever be needed for our sins. 
And he rose again in triumph over the powers of sin and death. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father above. And on the basis of what he's done, we know that day is coming so certainly that even though it's not yet December 25th, we can hold that joy and that hope in our hearts even today. And we can say it really is true. That together with Jesus Christ, no matter how dark the world may feel around us, we can experience the joy of hope in Jesus Christ ourselves today. Saying like kids on December 1st, that day may still be coming. But even today, I know it's already mine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that's a massive statement, and we've only just begun to kind of scratch at the surface of it. In fact, it's such a massive statement that in order to explain what he means When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In order to explain what that means, the author of this letter is going to have to write the longest sentence in the New Testament. No joke. What Elizabeth read from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to the end of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 is one very long sentence. Your English teacher would tell you, don't do that. But the Holy Spirit told Paul it's okay. So it just goes to show, what do English teachers know, right? I love English teachers actually if you're one of them. It's the longest run-on sentence in the New Testament. Why? Because it's trying to explain the glory of this mystery that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And as that unfolds, we're going to see today how verses 4 through 6 put us face to face with the spiritual blessings that we've received because we are loved by God the Father. And the next Sunday, we'll keep reading this long run-on sentence. And in verses 7 through 12, we will see how God has blessed us so that we are redeemed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in two weeks, we'll keep reading this long run on sentence and we'll pay attention to how God has blessed us so that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? Notice the end of each of these sections. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, To the praise of His glory. And so as we unpack a little bit this week and next week and the week after. That we are blessed. By the love of the Father. 
by the redemption we receive in the Son and by the sealing work of His Holy Spirit, all of it aims toward one unified goal, that we would be united together to the praise of His glory. So why would we give thanks for the Father's love? Here's a huge reason. Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 3. But then, it's going to zoom in a little bit on one more specific reason why we would give thanks for the Father's love. In verses 4 through 6, we can give thanks for the Father's love because He chose us for adoption. He chose us for adoption. What does that mean? These verses put us face to face with some scary ideas. They can be scary because often they are divisive. I'm talking about ideas like this language in verse 4, He chose us. Or the language in verse 5 in the ESV or the NIV, He predestined us. These are scary words sometimes because if you've been around the church very long, you might know that sometimes when church folk or seminary folk talk about words like God choosing us or predestination, what they mean is this is our chance to throw down in theological debate and start beating each other up. But I want to draw your attention to the purpose for which Paul brings up these weighty theological ideas. Paul does not say, I want to talk about God choosing us and I want to talk about God's predestining plan for his people. He doesn't say, I want to talk about these things because these are going to make for really good arguments in the church. He brings these things up because he says, I want y'all to be unified in praising God for His glorious grace that we have received in union with Jesus Christ. Exhibit A. He chose us. In other words, in the mind of Paul, and if we learn to think the way the Scriptures are teaching us to think, these ideas like He chose us together with Jesus is not just a, an opportunity for us to beat each other up in fights. It's an opportunity for us to unify together in praising God's name for His amazing grace in our lives. We sometimes sing a hymn together as a church. And the first line of that hymn says, How deep the Father's love for us. What's the next line? How vast. Beyond all measure. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 4 and 5, 
the Holy Spirit is expanding the scope of our vision just a little bit so that we can take in a little more clearly how deep the Father's love is and how vast, beyond even an ability to measure it, all to the praise of his name. Of course, this is not the only way to try to measure the immeasurable love of God. But one biblical way of measuring the immeasurable love of God is to ask the question, how far back does God's love for us go? And some of us will want to say, well, I think his love goes back to the day when I first believed in Jesus as my Savior. And we scratch our heads a little bit and we say, well, wait a second. I do think that there is a sense in which God shows his love to the whole world and he shows his kindness by providing for the just and the unjust alike. So maybe at least in some sense, God loved me before I believed in him. How far back does God's love for us go? The answer that Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 gives us is this. His love goes back before the foundation of the world. Sometimes when we put our kids to bed, we play these fun little games with them. And, you know, we say, I love you to the moon and back. I love you, which is just a way of saying in poetic little kids terms. I love you more than any measurement could take in. Little kid doesn't need to know how far it is to the moon and back. They just know. That's a massive love. And if you've loved me that much now, I bet you'll keep on loving me that much into the future. Here, we get this jaw-dropping, mind-exploding idea that God says, I love you to the moon and back. I always have and I always will. My love for you is so immeasurable. Do you want to know when it began? It didn't just begin when you started believing in me. It didn't even begin on the day when you were born. It didn't even begin on the day when the world was made. He says, I love you to the moon and back. I always have and I always will. And here's my riddle for you, the Lord says in love. I've loved you since before the foundation of the world. And we say I can't exactly measure what was going on before the foundation of the world. And like a father putting his daughter to bed, the Lord through the pages of scripture just smiles back at us and nods and says, I love you that far and back. I always have and I always will. 
How far back does the Lord love us? Much further back than we'd suspect at first glance. In fact, I wasn't sure about using this, but I'll just stick in this little quote here from Charles Spurgeon describing he was a famous preacher in Britain about 150 years ago. And he describes the time that he came to reflect for the first time on the fact that the Lord has loved us since before the foundation of the world, that he chose us with Christ before the world was made. And Charles Spurgeon describes his reflection on this like this. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. But I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths. I was sitting in the house of God and I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I did not believe it. Maybe some of you can relate today. I was sitting there in the view and I was not thinking much about the sermon because I didn't agree with it. But then, Spurgeon says, the thought struck me. How did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. And so as we read Ephesians chapter 1, and we read this mind-boggling idea that he chose us, together with Christ, before the foundation of the world. It is our humble acknowledgement that God is at the bottom of it all. And however far back we think we can go in understanding God's love, His love goes back even further. To the praise of His glorious grace. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. It's a salvation idea. Something taken away. All our blame taken away by His choice, by His decision. A holiness given to us and for us by His decision. But notice where the text goes next. In Love, it says, probably the last couple words of verse 4 in your translation. Very important words here. In love. 
predestined. If you want a different translation of that, the New Living Translation says, God decided in advance. God decided in advance to do what? To adopt us. In love, He predestined us for adoption. As His children, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. This idea that God chose us, listen, is a family idea. It's a family idea that puts us face to face with God's decision to adopt us as kids into His family. How deep the Father's love, how vast beyond all measure that He would adopt us into His family. What is this idea of theological adoption all about? Those of you who have done our starting point class for new believers know that I love the chapter in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, a whole chapter called Sons of God. I think if he were writing it today, he would call it Sons and Daughters of God or Children of God, whatever. You get the idea. But in that beautiful chapter called Sons of God, Dr. Packer, one of the great teachers and catechizers of the Christian faith in a previous generation, explains this idea like this. He says, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. What does that mean? It means that closeness to replace our sense of distance from God because of our sin and affection Speaking to that sneaking suspicion that so many of us feel, that so many of us feel that God only tolerates us and nothing more. Closeness, affection, and generosity, hope, and a future with Christ forevermore. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, Dr. Packer says. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I wonder if this has sunk in for you. That God's love for you, which goes back further than you can remember and further than you can imagine, is a love like the love of a dad for his little girl. Like the love of a dad for a son. Today is my wife's birthday. Happy birthday. We've been married for 18 years. I won't share her age because that's kind of socially impolite, I guess. It's on Facebook, someone says so. Go there and find it. We've been married for 18 years, and one of the great journeys of our lives together has been a couple of journeys of adoption in our family. Um, And... Adoption is a beautiful gift 
swimming in love from first to last. And like we were talking earlier about the already and the not yet, two things can be true at once. Adoption certainly has plenty of loss and grief associated with it. But the whole thing, when done rightly, is saturated and soaked and dripping with love. What is adoption? If we talk about what it means for, let's say, the first child that we adopted, my son, to be adopted into our family, what does it mean? It means in one sense that there was a legal declaration that was made at one point in time. We went some months after he had been living with our family. We had an appointment with a judge, and that judge made a decision, and it was filed in the legal record books. And he did something that I didn't even know about. We'd done these trainings for months about adoption. And that day he did something that I didn't even know a judge was allowed to do. He issued a new birth certificate for our son. Stating that he had been a member of our family since the day he was born. What does it mean to be adopted? In part, it means there is a legal decision a determination that cannot be changed. What does it mean to be adopted? It means something more than that also though, right? Because if all it means to be adopted is that there's a legal declaration and no ongoing relationship, that is the opposite of what adoption is about. So to be adopted means that there is a a past legally binding decision that has certainly been made. But beyond that, it also means there's an ongoing, lifelong, forever into the future kind of love and affection and relationship that is just beginning to grow on the day when that legal declaration is made, right? And if we ask, what does it mean to be adopted? Certainly it has something to do with that legal declaration. Certainly it has a great deal to do with that ongoing experience of love and relationship and closeness and affection as far into the future as you can imagine. But where does it come from? In our family, I can tell you it didn't exactly come from me. But it did come Because years before my son was born, and even before my wife Katie and I were married, even before we were engaged, Katie had a conversation with me when she said, I wouldn't want to marry somebody who didn't want to adopt. And as a guy who was doing ring shopping, I was like, well, I've always wanted to adopt. (laughs) smart right and then years later that intention that Katie had mentioned in her heart that prior decision that she had made that we had agreed upon long before our children were born it was enacted including legal decisions And including an ongoing relationship stretching out into the future. 
And here's what I want to suggest is that's a picture of what Ephesians chapter 1 is inviting us to marvel at. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that we are declared to be His children. 1 John 3, 1. That we should be called children of God. And so we actually are. It's declared to be true because we're united by faith with Jesus Christ. It's an experience that we're invited into. An experience of living every day. Fighting off those fears and those lies of the enemy that the Lord only tolerates us in the kingdom of heaven and nothing more. Fighting those fears off with the truth of scripture that we are loved. That we are cherished. That we are chosen. And where does it come from? Somewhere way back before the day when you and I heard the gospel and said, well, I believe. Somewhere way back further than we can imagine. The Lord said, I love you. Listen, there are mysteries involved in this that you and I are not going to get to the bottom of. But if we sit humbly before the way these mysteries are described to us in Holy Scripture, even if we can't get to the bottom of all these mysteries, we can still stand in awe together. Singing out how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure it is. What difference does that make for us? I'm just going to wave at three things briefly. Number one, this should produce in us a certain kind of personal humility. One of the phrases that's going to come up in the book of Ephesians later on is this phrase, that none should boast. And when we begin to imagine the love of God, the way that Scripture describes the love of God, going back immeasurably further than we can even imagine, it leaves us not saying, I'm so much better than those other Christians. Or even, I'm so much better than all of those people out there in the world. Rather, it leaves no room for boasting. It leaves us simply bowing in humility. Praising God for his absolutely amazing grace in our lives. As we get what it means that he chose us for adoption, it leaves us with this personal humility. Secondly, it leads us into loving one another. Because this passage is not just teaching that he loved you, but that he loved us. And in the letter of Ephesians, which is going to have so much to say about being built together, Paul is kind of digging a foundation that other stuff is going to get built into later in the message. 
so that we not only say, praise God, that by His amazing grace, He loved me before the foundation of the world, we also look around this room and we say, praise God, that He loved us before the foundation of the world. It's not just that God doesn't tolerate me, it's that He doesn't just tolerate them either. The other people in the room who feel somehow different, who feel like they're from a different church background, who feel like they're not naturally my brother or sister in whatever would lead you to feel that way. This teaching at the beginning of Ephesians, it positions us to kneel with personal humility and say, thank you, God, for saving me by your amazing grace. But it also positions us to love one another. To look on each other with the kind of love that says, praise God that he didn't just choose me, he also chose you. And sometimes we need to add with a smile and what a sense of humor God had in bringing different people like us together. Praise his name for that. It should lead to a personal humility. It should lead to a love for one another. And above all, what's the purpose in this passage? It should lead us to praise his name. If we read a passage like this and all we find are ways that we can go and clench our fists and start throwing blows at other Christians who understand the doctrine of predestination differently than we do, then we have missed the point widely. But if we hear this teaching that he chose us together with Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That in His love, His immeasurable love that goes further back than we could even imagine, He decided in advance that we should be adopted together into His family. As that sinks in, It should leave us with a personal humility. It should leave us with a love for our brothers and sisters together in one adopted family. But it should lead us above all to with one voice sing the praises of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What is it that unites a diverse church in a divided world? Here's where this letter begins. By calling us to give thanks for the Father's love, which is vast beyond all measure, blessing us with every spiritual blessing and choosing us before the foundation of the world that we should be adopted together into His family, all to the praise of His glorious grace. At this time, I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.